Little Onions. <laughs> Carrie Ann's mad. Uh, you know why I'm mad? Because this is such a long movie, and it's hardly <laughs> queer. I mean, <laughs> listen, I will give it to you. This is queerer than I remember. Yes. Okay? <laughs> I thought this was going to be just about his whole career and then a footnote about his sexuality, but... It is woven throughout. Like It is woven throughout. This is my favorite Leo DiCaprio. Well... Not my favorite, because, you know, my favorite's Titanic. But in terms of Leo DiCaprio as an actor, as a performer, this knocks it out of the park for me. Like, he should have been at least nominated for this Oscar. Guys, he wasn't even nominated that year. I know. And then they gave it to him for The Revenant. And I'm like, (laughs) did you even see J. Edgar? He is the man. This is Meryl Streep thoughts right here. (laughs) And she also won that year for For Iron Lady. Lady. Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming, where the more untrue the story, the more dramatic the impact. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And today we are talking about the 2011 biographical drama, J. Edgar. Jedgar. Jedgar. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Jedgar. How we doing? Can we please refer to him as Jedgar? Yeah, Jedgar. I mean, I go back and forth between Hoover and Edgar and throughout yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> Oh my god, guys, welcome back to our Pride coverages this month, and yes, this is queer. I just It's just gonna be really hard for you to see it in between mostly Ross's history corner and, and the actual self-professed cannibal in the room. This chaotic narrative carry not the army hammer. Okay, we'll we talk, to- talk about it for a second when we get to We've Got Names. <sighs> but not beforehand. Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can email the show at kicking and streaming podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet. Everybody want everyone to come and join this little queer watch party we got going on this June. Yeah, listen, you should support queers all year long, but June is the perfect time to support an independent queer podcast. Indeed, we are both queer. Yes, we are. Right? Yes. You don't feel straight lately, do you? No, no. (laughs) But guys, did you know that in these queer times, there has never been a better time? To give us your money. Yeah, talk about supporting queer podcasts. Guys, go over to our Patreon page. It's only $5 a month. You get access to all of our bonus content, all of our shooting the shit, all of our what we've been watching, all of our long-form coverage, all of our television coverage. We did The Office last month on May. Mm-hmm. And what are we doing right now? Well, we're recording this in May, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure. But, like, I have a feeling it's Mad Men content. <laughs> no! I have a feeling it is! <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, Who's ready to get nosy in people's lives? When morals decline and good men do nothing, evil flourishes. A society unwilling to learn from the past is doomed. We must never forget our history. We must never lower our guard. You will rise to be the most powerful man in the country. It is my belief that when a man becomes a part of this bureau, he must so conduct himself as to eliminate even the slightest possibility of criticism 
as to his conduct. Mr. Tolson, I need someone who I can trust. I want you to be my number two man. You understand? I need you. Imagine if every citizen in this country were uniquely identifiable by the pattern on their fingers. Imagine how quickly we could find them if they committed a crime. Do you remember that file we created on his wife? Mrs. Roosevelt. Will you make a copy for me, please? Is that legal? Sometimes you need to bend the rules a little in order to keep your country safe. Please leave the transcripts here with me. Feel free and share them with your brother, Mr. Kennedy. Let him know that I have a copy of my own. The president is afraid. All the admiration in the world can't fill the spot where love goes. We are the sinners, Edgar. We tolerated lawlessness in the land until it grew to diabolical proportions. The blood is on your hands, Edgar. What are your exact qualifications for your position of leadership in this bureau? My qualifications, sir? I don't know who I can trust anymore. I see right through you. You're a scared, heartless, horrible little man. Don't wilt like a little flower. Be strong. Yes, mother. It's time this generation learned the difference between villain and hero. Even great men can be corrupted. Guys, what we're basically going to examine here, obviously last week in Brokeback Mountain, we examined a queer relationship between two men mm -hmm. and how complicated that was in the times they were from the 1960s to the early 1980s, you know? And believe me, we're dealing with the same kind of stuff. But this is just, this is blown up on such a larger scale because the, the central figure in this narrative, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation... From 1924 to 1972. Yeah. And the way that he suppressed who he was as a person and how that affected every facet of American life and how we hold people accountable in this country, it's honestly whack. And it's a big <laughs> topic, and we're going to break it down for you today. We're going to try not to be here for super long. We're going to. I just like, <laughs> don't make promises you can't keep. But I'm going to drive and you're going to let me. Yeah, I am. And we're just going to try. We're not going to talk about every single little detail, even though Ross might want to. Listen to me. <laughs> not the third person. Like <laughs> We are not amused. But we are amused today because, oh, I love this movie, guys. I saw it in the theater with mom. With it mom? It was just me and mom that went to go see this movie. Imagine how awkward that was. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Con considering the J. Edgar relationship with the mother. I'm uh -huh. like, yeah, no, it it's okay, though. But, guys, this film is directed by Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Guys, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> the guy that never raises his voice? Do you feel lucky, punk? Rawhide? Clint Eastwood? <laughs> the Dollars Trilogy? The Spaghetti Western Clint Eastwood? Oh, Dirty Harry? Grand Torino. Yeah, I know, I know. Blech. By no means his directorial debut, but Clint Eastwood, he's still a good filmmaker. Like, I yeah. love this movie. While, like, while the content of the films he chooses to make are at times suspect, I gotta hand it to him. It's a beautifully created project. Mm -hmm. And I don't have time to get into all of Clint Eastwood's credits, but- You know who Clint Eastwood is! He's here, you know. Um, this movie made roughly $50 million. So not a huge return. But- It made $50 million on a $35 million budget, you know. 
Uh, it came out in November 2011, and I just really can't believe Leo DiCaprio was not nominated for an Oscar <laughs> because this is just one of his greatest performances, in my opinion. Yeah, in your not-so-humble opinion. Yeah, no. <laughs> Absolutely. I also think it's wild that Clint Eastwood composed the music for this, which I think it's a Mel Brooks thing where he just hummed it out to a composer and took the credit. <laughs> okay. And took the credit. All right, folks, you might have guessed it, but we've got names. <laughs> As J. Edgar Hoover. John Edgar Hoover. Yes. As we've just mentioned, we have Leo DiCaprio. Please welcome him back to Kicking and Streaming. He was, of course, with us when we covered Titanic. Mm-hmm. And has, is this only his second time? I think it might be. Corey? Yeah. Corey, is it only Leo's second time? <laughs> You're the one dealing with that. Um, <laughs> What's Eating Gilbert Great, Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann one from 1996. <laughs> and the Baz Luhrmann adaptation of The Great Gatsby. That's right, yes, absolutely. Baz, Baz loves Luhrmann. his Leo. Yeah. And uh, Catch Me If You Can, Gangs of New York, The Departed, Revolutionary Road. And um, also his fucking Quentin Tarantino era. Oh, yeah. Like, right after this, he started his Quentin Tarantino era, and I'm not going to mention all of that. But, Leo, you're a good performer. Date someone your own age. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry you only got your Oscar for The Revenant. Like, sorry about that. Um, Yeah, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI for uh, almost 50 years. Um, Like, literally, he worked for the Department of Justice from Woodrow Wilson to Richard Nixon. That's crazy. Two different worlds. It really is. And he presided over all of it. And J. Edgar Hoover was instrumental in the way that we administer justice in this country today. Yeah. He was not a good person, guys. No. I hate it when the queers are problematic. He was a tiny little queer evil man and very spiteful and thought that he had this responsibility to maintain this power over people and it just or else we all descended into chaos, we'll talk about it. Portraying Clyde Tolson, the deputy director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and I'm sorry, J. Edgar Hoover's life partner. Yeah. We have. I know. I hate that we even have to talk about it. We hate that he's here, but Army Hammer is here. Actual self-professed cannibal Yeah. Army Hammer. Listen. If you haven't seen House of Hammer, guys... Spring for the free week of Discovery Plus or whatever it's on. Yeah, isn't his family like old money? Oh, very old money. Yeah. Like but- Armand Hammer. Like, that's his great-grandpa. They have been around for a long oh, time. Oh, Armand Hammer. That's what it is. Yeah. But that, that's the that's that- the thing. He didn't found that company or own that company. He just got sick of people asking, hey, are you the CEO of Armand Hammer? And he's like, no, I'm not. It's just my fucking name. So I'm just going to buy it. So that people will stop asking. That's, oh, okay. Yeah, no, they're not related. And, like, I just... uh... Okay, guys, Lone Ranger, call me by your name. Ew. Yeah! Uh, You know, like, you know Army Hammer. Every single thing he's touched is now tainted. I just, I mean, but, like, hey, can't we say that about a lot of people that have been with us here at Kicking and Streaming? We can! It's just, I trust... Cannibal is not a word people casually throw around! We have to move on. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Portraying Helen Gandy... J. Edgar Hoover's lifelong personal secretary. We have the one and only Naomi Watts in her first kicking and streaming appearance? Might be, because we haven't done The Ring and we haven't done King Kong. You know I would. Oh, we've got to do do King Kong! Kong. Oh, I love that. I love that adaptation. She looks so much like Fay Ray in that movie. I know. It's It's crazy. It's so incredible. Um, Guys, um, Diana Mm -hmm. from 2013, Brides of Christ. Mulholland Drive, Home and Away, 
Um, the Huckabees, uh, Eastern Promises. I've never heard of any of these movies. <laughs> She's an Aussie. Yeah, she is. I always used to confuse Naomi Watts and Nicole Kidman for some reason. They do look similar. And they're both from Australia. Yeah. But Naomi Watts looks more like Kate Blanchett than Nicole Kidman, so I don't know. <laughs> um, portraying um, Charles Lindbergh, because he will be a huge figure in this narrative. I didn't know how big, frankly. Uh, probably the most famous American aviator of all time, Charles Lindbergh. We have Josh Lucas. You'll know him from stuff like You Can Count on Me with Laura Linney. Uh-huh. Sorry. I mean, he's an American psycho. Yes, he is. Uh, the Deep End, Beautiful Mind, Sweet Home Alabama, The Hulk. Okay, Josh. He's also the adult version of Haley Joel Osment in Secondhand Lions. Is he really? Yes, he is. It's so funny that I did not recognize his face at all. <laughs> As Annie Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover's mother, we have Dame Judi Dench. Please welcome her back to Kicking and Streaming. Uh, she was with us when we covered My Week with Marilyn. She's in so many things. I don't have enough time to get in all the Dame Judi Dench's credits, but like- You're not going to mention- Home on the range, which we absolutely must do. I don't care if it's this year or next, but it has to be next if not this. Like, oh my God. Guys, there's so many names in this movie, so I'm literally just going to have to go through them. But you have our main players right there, okay? Yeah. Dermot Mulroney is here. <laughs> for five minutes. Yeah, yeah, he's here for five seconds. He's been with us before. Uh, Jeffrey Donovan is here as Robert F. Kennedy. Dennis O'Hare from American Horror Story. Yeah. He's Dr. Osborne. Steven Root. Damon Harrion. Leah Thompson. Leela Rogers. Ken Howard. Josh Hamilton. Jessica Hecht. Jeff Pearson. Michael O'Neill. Josh Stamberg. Zach Grenier, Christopher Shire, Ed Westwick, Michael Rady, Miles Fisher, like Adam Driver. In his debut film. Yeah, I know. I barely recognized him under that Newsies cap. And you know, Lincoln is right after this. So oh, Lord. I'm just saying. So this whole film is centered around this alternating timeline between the beginning of J. Edgar Hoover's career and the latter half of it. There's so much timeline ping-ponging. It's mostly, you know, the later half of it is from mostly 1961 to 1972, and then the earlier part of it is mostly from 1919 to 1935. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we skipped World War II. Yeah, me too. Um, my God. <laughs> he must have been busy then. And the thing about the historical accuracy of the aspect of the way this movie was written is that J. Edgar Hoover never did this. He never dictated a memoir to FBI agents who were supposed to keep it secret that he was treating as ghostwriters or anything like yeah, that. I was really not understanding what was going on there in yeah, the beginning. Because you see several different actors playing FBI agents throughout it who are listening to him tell this whole story of his career. And um, I, I was like, am I not paying enough attention? They're all medium height, medium build, brunette haired men. Uh -huh, like, am no. I just not noticing that they're the same guy? No, or? but like th that never happened. He no. never dictated a memoir like this. He never gave this kind kind of account of his career, why would he? Uh, yeah. Tracy, you can't protest, Han. <laughs> You'll be on lists. You'll be on files. J. Edgar Hoover will still be wiretapping your cold, dead body in the grave. I knew that reference was coming. <laughs> I knew like, it. No, yeah, J. Edgar Hoover, he's crazy. And he made this country more chaotic than he would ever admit. J. Edgar Hoover was to the death committed to the support of the American government to be safe from radicalism against it. Like, that was his life's goal, was to protect the American government 
from the American people or people he believed were working to bring it down. Was so vehemently opposed to MLK's existence near the end of his life, called him the greatest threat to American democracy. Are you kidding me? Yeah, guys, it's just, it's all whack, but this is a wonderfully done film. Let's get into it. Okay. We begin with J. Edgar Hoover at his office in the very building that would one day be named after him. Oh, boy. That houses the offices of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Rename that hunk of bricks. I know. It's still the J. Edgar Hoover (laughs) Justice Building. And I'm like, no, no, he did so many bad things. My first note is that the makeup doesn't look as good as I remember. It's better than Tolson's aged makeup. It is, it is. It is better than Army Hammer's aged makeup. Army's fake forehead. I like, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. And it took them five hours to get him looking this way. Good. So, uh, mad respect. (laughs) Production team, you better work, (laughs) W-E-R-K. He is giving this tirade to this random agent about the ongoing civil rights movement and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the Communist Party, and how it's all a disease that corrupts and turns men and institutions to evil, and how defiance against the U.S. government is nothing we haven't seen before. Let me tell you something. The SCLC has direct communist ties. Even great men can be corrupted, can't they? Communism is not a political party. It is a disease. It corrupts the soul, turning even the gentlest of men into vicious, evil tyrants. Is he just lumping all of these people in with communism? Yeah, no, that's the thing. No, America has always been extremely terrified of communism because of its government. And, (laughs) yup, you know, like, guys, communism is not a disease. It's a political ideology. And the way that it is executed in some countries around the world is in a fascist sense. Russia, that's not real communism. China, that's not real communism. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. It's just not. It is a warped view of communism that Americans are deathly afraid of, and that's what J. Edgar Hoover would have had you believe in his time. I love that that agent says, You know the funny thing about notoriety? Especially the kind that needs adoration? Fame for fame's sake? If unchecked, it inevitably leads to villainy. I suggest you look at what this squabble is really about before you destroy the reputation of the thing we both know you love most. Oh! He said the quiet part out loud! Oh, like, yeah, no, because... He added him directly, that's and... That's gonna be the whole thesis statement! That's the whole thing about Hoover. He does not like to be questioned. Mm-mm. If you question him, he questions your loyalty to him. Yeah. And he does not like scrutiny. And we will figure out why he is so uncomfortable with scrutiny <laughs> as we go along here. He's a little paranoid! In 1919, Agent Smith, my first boss here at the Department of Justice was Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. He was a Quaker. He didn't believe in war, but he understood the necessity of strength and resolve. Believe what you will from historians, most right from a present perspective, forgetting context. Mitchell Palmer was a hero. That's another thing about Hoover. He's a revisionist. (laughs) He's a revisionist for Jesus. (laughs) Like, he just... And you will see... Like, if Jesus 
had questioned him, he yeah. wouldn't have told you that he was not the son of God. He'd be like, are you a communist? <laughs> are you a communist, My Jesus? lord, like, I just... <laughs> we've got an unreliable narrator here, guys. Oh, boy, do we ever. And that's what I want you to remember as we're going forward. So, yeah, Hoover wants to take us back to 1919. Woodrow Wilson was president, and J. Edgar Hoover was beginning his career at the U.S. Department of Justice. Hoover was a lifelong D.C. resident. He mm-hmm. was born there. He died there. He came from a moderately financially secure family, a lot of mental illness uh. in his ancestry and his lineage. Um, I think that the I think that Leo's accent on this film like film critics and historians alike they have praised his mid Atlantic accent. Yeah, his his um, it's the tempo. Of how J. Edgar Hoover used to speak. It's not just the accent or the tempo, but also the way he could stutter from time to time. Mm -hmm. Like, it is actually very impressive, Leo. I'll give it to you. So the presiding officer of the U.S. Department of Justice is, as you all know or should know, the U.S. Attorney General. And the Attorney General at the time was a man named A. Mitchell Palmer. And at the end of World War One, almost all of the major monarchies in the world had fallen, and there was this sense of radicalism all throughout the globe. I have... Why are the Bolsheviks blowing people up? No, that's the thing. The, the Russian Revolution had kind of spilled out into the rest of the world, right? Have you heard? There's a rumor in St. Petersburg. Like, it, that's the thing, guys. Like, people saw what Russia did to their own government uh-huh. and went, oh, oh no. my God, that's so hot. We should do that here. And then the government was like, oh, no, man, that could be us. And there were these impassioned rhetorics of communism and radicalism and anarchy Mm. in the United States. Because what had the U.S. government ever done for Americans but get them into fucking trouble around the world for its entire existence? Just about. And by the end of World War I, the world had completely changed. Mm -hmm. The age of deference was officially over with the fall of Austro-Hungary, Russia, like all of these huge ruling powers that had ruled for centuries, they were gone. And A. Mitchell Palmer is really trying to quash radicalism in the United States. See, Palmer fought the radicals just as I have. Just as I have, he was targeted. He wasn't alone. Across the country that night, eight bombs exploded, all at 11 p.m. Two United States Senators, four cabinet members, a Supreme Court Justice, John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, all of them targeted by Bolshevik communists. But he's telling us about the Palmer raids, which A. Mitchell Palmer hired him specifically to do. Crimes were so often mishandled before 1919 because no one really respected science at that level. No one really respected forensics forensics, or how to investigate a crime properly. In 1919, this group of anarchists here in the United States orchestrated a mass bombing mm-hmm. against American government officials, high-profile wealthy Americans, you know, judicial officers, and they all released, they all set off these bombs at 11 p.m. one night mm-hmm. in 1919, and A. Mitchell Palmer and his family were the victims of one of them. They survived. <laughs> because the bomb went off too early. And, like, we see this little thing, like, you know, little, you know, Edgar on his bike rides over to the crime scene and is, like, picking up evidence that everyone else is forgetting or discarding. Because they're just scooping it into buckets. That's the thing about Hoover. I identify. 
identify with him a little bit. I know, I hate it. I hate it. He has this overwhelming drive for efficiency Mm. and seeing the problems Mm -hmm. in governance. And... It's going to come back to hurt us. It is. It is. Like I said, guys, stay with me here. We keep flip-flopping back and forth between the present time and the narrative and the past. In the 60s, while he's talking about the Palmer raids, he's also dealing with his current attorney general, Robert F. Kennedy. He believes that the radicalist movement is alive once again in America in the form of the civil rights movement. It's like it's it. It's like it comes back every, every 20 years. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, like... And so he wants to launch a surveillance program that Robert Kennedy is just not down with. He wants to wiretap Martin Luther King just in case Martin Luther King is trying to foment a rebellion against the U.S. government. And even if MLK ever was... Which he wasn't. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Fuck the federal government of the United States keeping rights away from human beings. Like, whatever. You're just afraid of losing your power, Edgar. Like, like when he's, like, giving him the... When he's giving RFK the files on the wiretaps and he's, like, leaving and he's, like... Please leave the transcripts here with me. Yes, sir. Oh, Feel free and share them with your brother. Oh, let him know that I have a copy of my own in safekeeping. Just so you know, you can share them with your brother. And just know that I have a copy of my own in safekeeping. Um, did he just low-key threaten the Attorney General of the United States? (laughs) Um... Back in 1919, we meet Helen Gandy for the first time. I have God, not Naomi Watts. Why we gotta bring her into this? I'm assuming this is the woman whose time he will eventually waste. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's the thing. Good morning, John. Good morning. Mr. Palmer has asked that you attend the emergency meeting today. Ms. Gladwell, please remember. It's Mr. Hoover. And who is this lovely addition to the secretarial pool? Pleased to meet you, Mr. Hoover. I'm Helen Gandy. Pleased to meet you, Miss Gandy. Welcome to the Department of Justice. Hoover is introduced to Helen Gandy. She's the newest addition to the uh, typist pool at the Department of Justice. And he, oh my God. he welcomes her and like he's, he's a little taken with her. And I'm like, is he taken with her or does he just see fresh meat to cover up his personal life? Um, I think you're right about that. We see him going home that night. He comes in on Dame Judi Dench. Mrs. Hoover. Is her name Anna? Her name's Annie. Annie, okay. It's the elation in his face with her back turned to him. Good evening, Mother. Edgar. Madame Marcia held court this morning. Her premonition, I should buy a dress. She says your father will die soon. And when he does, you will rise to be the most powerful man in the country. She is so far up his ass, she's wearing him as a hat. She kind, He kind of worships her. He, yeah. He kind of idolizes her, you know, because of how destined for greatness she says he always will be. Like, I'm like, no pressure at all, Edgar. So Edgar is also taking Helen Gandy out tonight on a little date. I'm going to come for you again. Because it's me? Yes, it is. Because where is he taking her on a date, Carrie? The Library of Congress! 
Congress. It was one of his first jobs. Oh. J. Edgar Hoover helped to organize the card catalog. Remember old libraries? Yep. Before computers and looking stuff up that way? You had the card catalog where you could find every piece of literature put into a library. Because at first I thought he was taking credit for inventing the Dewey Decimal System or no. the card catalog system, but no. no. He just helped organize he it. He just helped organize the card catalog system for the Library of Congress, and I'm jealous of him. And like, I just he's got his arms out, like, look at all of this. Look at all this organization. Like, Imagine if we could do this for human beings. He gets off on the efficiency mm. of that. And so do I, quite honestly. But not the human beings part. <laughs> Earlier when his mom was like, romance her. <laughs> Take her to the Library of Congress. Wear a blue tie. You look so <laughs> handsome in a blue tie. And yeah, here he is taking her to the Library of Congress. Like, she times him to see how fast he can use the card catalog, and he gets to a book in like a minute and ten seconds. Now imagine if every citizen in this country were uniquely identifiable by their own card and number. Say the, the pattern on their fingers. Imagine how quickly we could find them if they committed a crime. It's all very impressive, John. I am John Munch from SVU right now. Absolutely fucking not. I would have thought you'd agree with that. No! How else are we going to find people? Well, like, I mean, like, no, I don't think it should be that easy. The government should not be able to find you in a minute and ten seconds, okay? Okay, well... Unless you're a violent criminal, absolutely well, not. Well, that's... Yes, that is the that is the measure behind this. But, like, like you've said, we've you ever, taken that way too far in this country. Carrie, have you ever been fingerprinted? Never. By, by a government entity? No. See? You're fine. Well, yeah. And until you commit a crime, you probably won't be. Mm. Don't commit crime. <laughs> Actually, be gay. Do crime. That's the whole point of this month. Like, okay, she rejects the most awkward advance of all time. The because Carrie, the way he's just like, he leans in to kiss her. Uh -huh. Just all of a sudden. And she's like, uh, Mr. Hoover, I don't know where you think this is going. And then he falls to one knee and proposes marriage. He's so desperate to have a beard. Uh-huh. He's so desperate to get a wife so his mother will stay off of him about it. They've known each other three weeks. Yeah, three weeks. Uh. And, like, she's just like, listen, can you keep a secret? And I'm like, better than anyone I know. <laughs> Edgar? Yes? Can you keep a secret? Yes, of course, you have my word. I'm not interested in getting married. My work comes first. Hmm. Then perhaps you would consider the position as my, as my personal secretary. A position she would hold for the rest of his life. That's crazy. Like, she becomes his most trusted minion. His gal Friday. Like, quite literally. And the way that he, she also takes to calling him Edgar. Mm -hmm. Because no, that's what his mother calls him. No one else but the most intimate people in his life call him Edgar. But in 1920, how could I protect us from anyone? Before I moved to this office, we were powerless. We had few federal laws, no right to carry firearms, and Congress liked it that way. Criminals ran free, but there was no law against keeping track of them. So I made a decision on my own. I compiled note cards and over 5,000 names and called the one department in Washington that still held a small piece of untested power. Is it the Department of Labor? The power to deport, sir? In this time, federal crime was so rampant that it went largely unchecked. There was not an organization at a federal level that had the manpower or resources to prosecute all federal crimes committed in these times. And, like, what 
Hoover does is he's looking to expand the Bureau of Investigation, as it was known at the time, the B.I. He wants to whip them into shape. Yes. And what he does is he and A. Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general, are manipulating the U.S. Department of Labor to deport foreign nationals. That is, people who are citizens of this country or just visiting this country. And who are, who are either naturalized or allowed to be here to deport them for spreading criticism against the U.S. government. I have, okay, deporting people without cause. And, yeah, the, the Department of Labor is just like, well, they're just exercising their rights to free speech and assembly. And they're like, nope, nope. So what do they decide to do? We're going to set a precedent. Oh, great. And they start with famed anarchist activist Emma Goldman. Not Emma Goldman. She was a feminist and a lesbian, and proudly so at that time. She was born in Russia, but she married an American citizen, and therefore, by American law, became an American citizen. Wish I could have known her. I know, right? She She seems rad. She was super dope and died in exile in Canada. God. Like, I know. I am a revolutionist by nature, and as such, I claim the right to rebel and resist invasion by all means, force included. Emma Goldman, she was the hero of the radical movement. If I could hand Caminetti Emma Goldman, he would deport her without a thought. You know, he's getting the Bureau more organized, and with Emma Goldman, he's looking to have her deported to set precedent so they can deport Whoever they want. It's very Alien and Sedition Acts from John Adams, you know? Yeah. And I bet that was used. Yeah, I bet it was. To make this decision. His colleagues are like, you're fighting ideas, Mm -hmm. not crimes. Exactly. And John's like, (laughs) Jedgar's like, no, I don't want to hear it. Don't question me or I'll get you blacklisted. Like... (laughs) Like, Hoover is responsible for so many of our current problems in governance and justice. Like all the dog whistle fear-mongering? Like, you know, when he's getting everybody up to shape and he hires all the new agents after, you know, (gasps) firing a lot of them. He thatchered everybody. The wets. You remember that? No, that's the thing. You know what they don't talk about in this movie? Mm. Is about how when he came in and he was setting all of those precedents for how people should look, behave, and act within the Bureau. You know another thing that he did? He fired all of the women agents and then made it against policy for women to become agents. That's super gay, Jedgar. Uh, yeah, what the fuck? That's all I'm saying. Like, oh my God. Like the suit comment with the one guy. <laughs> this is not a saloon. Perhaps you are better suited for the police force than the Bureau of Investigations. I've been with the department of the Bureau for seven years, Edgar. Almost as long as you. No. You were with the old Bureau seven years and that Bureau is now gone, sir. And so are you. I quickly dismissed all agents that did not fit my standards. Education, physical fitness, but above all, loyalty. We cut to Emma Goldman being questioned in New York City, (laughs) where she lived. And, like, she's refusing to answer anything they ask her like a true pro. (laughs) Go, Emma. And then the presiding officer of this committee is just like, okay, since you're not going to answer any of these questions about how you might be influencing the downfall of the U.S. government, which she really wasn't, guys. She wasn't. She was not having a great enough effect to disestablish America. (laughs) Nope. Which is what J. Edgar Hoover and A. Mitchell Palmer would have you believe. They decide to deport her. And they have their precedent. 
This alien has refused to answer any questions pertaining to the charges contained in the warrant, notwithstanding the fact that every opportunity was afforded her. I recommend deportation. And just like that, we had our precedent. This alien. She's an American citizen. Yep. How dare you call her an alien? Like, I, what the fuck? It sets one of the most dangerous legal precedents ever handed down by the U.S. justice system. Like, the, the Palmer communist radical anarchist raids begin. They start, the, the DOJ and the BI start raiding all of these, like, known communist hubs in, in America. I have in a five, six, seven, eight raids! On Valentine's Day in Patterson, New Jersey, they raid this one hideout for anarchists, and they shut it down as a perversion of capitalism, I... a free market, and the right to manipulate the freedoms of all humans in this country. I have, it's always a good sign when a white man with delusions of grandeur pulls out a box of guns and says, go nuts, boys! And the only reason they're allowed to do this is because the radicals are willing to use violence to achieve their means. And there's no law against them using guns against them. And the thing that's not working for him in the present day narrative in the 60s is that the American civil rights movement is different in that regard. Mm -hmm. MLK's whole thing peace was peaceful protest. Yep. And nonviolent resistance. So how are you gonna come at them with the same energy? He's having a lot of he's having a much harder time in the 60s coming against the civil rights movement than he did in the 20s coming against the Bolshevik movement. Like they arrest 4,000 people and deport over 500 of them, many of them American citizens. And that's that's it's not who were not born in this country but were citizens of this country at the time. Yeah, like I <sighs> and like this they hail this as a victory. Like yes, they were committing crimes, but as far as overthrowing the government goes, great operation. Like fuck Wilson, fuck Harding, fuck that whole period of history. The roaring 20s. Oh, everything was lovely and beautiful. <laughs> 23 skidoo. And the liquor flowed even though it was illegal. I shut the fuck up. <laughs> and because of these raids and the PR scandal and the civil problems it creates with the American public going, oh, we can just be deported for me having a contrary opinion to the U.S. government. They eject Mitchell. Yeah, no, A. Mitchell Palmer is dismissed as attorney general, and there's this big reshuffle that happens at DOJ. <laughs> and the new attorney general, Harlan Fisk Stone, who would go on to become an associate justice of the Supreme Court and our chief justice in the 1940s. Wow. He decides that he is going to make J. Edgar Hoover the acting director of the Bureau of Investigation because he is quite literally one of the only employees left after the Palmer raids. Oh, man. And he goes in for this meeting with Stone, and Stone's like, listen, I'm picking you for this because you have no social life. <laughs> you don't, you're not married. You don't seem interested in a gal. You don't have any buddies. You're the man for this job because you have nothing else going on. He's like, that's our Hitler. This seems to be the only thing you want to do, so I'm going to make you acting director. The Bureau must be divorced from politics, not be a catch-all for political hacks. Recruits must be college-educated. Appointments must be based on merit. Promotions will be made on proven ability, and, well, the Bureau will be responsible only to you, sir, the Attorney General. I wouldn't give you the job under any other conditions. Hoover now has free reign over the B.I., Hoover creates what is what we know today as the FBI. But it's not, there's no F yet. No. We gotta wait for that. At a dinner, he meets 
Clyde Tolson for the first time. Not Army Hammer! Clyde Tolson's a recent graduate of Georgetown Law, and, you know... He's he's quite taken with Tulsa when he first meets him. Oh, I'm glad he's taken with him because my blood ran cold. I know, and I get it. It's hard to get past the army hammer. What, let's put the hammer to that. <laughs> is all I'm saying. Like he asks about he asks Gandhi about Tulsa. He asks Helen about Tulsa specifically in interview rounds. And oh yeah, when they're going over resumes for new recruits and he's being tough on all these other dudes who are not willing to devote their entire existence to the Bureau. But then when we go over Tolson's resume, all of a sudden he's feeling flexible. He handpicks him. Because it's particularly mentioned in this report that he's not interested in women. Yeah, the, the women comment, why that would be in that report, I have no idea. But he went, not interested in women, you say? <laughs> hmm. Yes, it, it mentions here that Mr. Tolson showed no particular interest in women. Then again, some of our best agents excel because they have no family encumbrance. Yes, you're right. Set up an interview. Okay, so not rugged, not interested in women, and has a great recommendation from the Secretary of War. And a regrettably gorgeous face. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, Miss Gandy, these men, they... They don't look up to me. Of course, I'm sure they admire you very much. No, no, like, they literally don't look up to me. He literally has little man syndrome. He thinks he's too short. Okay. And the way... Okay, I know exactly what you're about to say. The way Helen then decides to solve this problem, if you could just remain behind your desk during job interviews instead of wandering around the room interrogating them, if you stay behind your desk, I'll put your desk on a platform that makes you taller. Elevated by books! Ross, I almost missed it. I almost went to take a note and completely missed that. And I was like, you've got to be joking. And it's while she's tending to his little man syndrome that she's like, also, Miss Gandy, would you mind creating um a confidential and private file for very, very sensitive information that I might have about people that run the free world? Oh, no. And she's like, yeah, no, totally. I can do that for you. Like, <laughs> this is a file that it would exist for over half a century. And that we, to this day, do not know the actual contents and of. And we'll never know. It's like the Library of Alexandria. It is, Carrie! <laughs> Did you take that yes! note? Yes! <laughs> it is the Library of Alexandria for the United States. Like, it is just gone. And who knows what we could have learned or how we could be doing things better if we had that info. Then we get this job interview with Clyde Tolson, like, back in the 20s, and it makes Hoover so nervous. Because even though he's taken every opportunity to assert authority over him and knock him down to size, it doesn't work. He's in the middle of a gay panic. T literally. <laughs> Tolson is unbothered by him. Uh-huh. And I think he finds that flustering yeah. and maybe a little bit hot. <laughs> like, seriously, Clyde actually opens a window because he is so visibly sweaty. <laughs> oh, no. Like, he's like, there you go, you big queen. Cool off a little bit. <laughs> oh, no. See, I can't enjoy the gay tension because... It's Army Hammer. I know. Yeah, he was a monster. It's ruining everything. That's going to be Carrie Ann's only note throughout the rest of the coverage. <laughs> is that Army Hammer is a vile monster. And Clyde's like, you know. And sir, where I may fall short in terms of resume, I apparently far exceed the rest in terms of honesty. I didn't lie to get this appointment, sir. Like the rest, yes, I would like to start a private practice eventually, but I could be persuaded otherwise if the right opportunities were to arise. The way he turned it around on him. Uh-huh. It's like, 
Carrie, they immediately go shopping together. I know. To a haberdasher. He's dressing him. Like the loudness, discussing the loudness of ties. <laughs> Does it get gayer? Him fixing his collar. <laughs> and this is where we get the birth of the name J. Edgar Hoover. Because the store clerk's like, we have a John Hoover whose credit's real bad with us. And he's like, well, I don't sign John Hoover. And he's like, okay, we'll just pick a different name then. J. Edgar Hoover. The birth of the name J. Edgar Hoover in a haberdashery is super gay. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So in the 30s, the Great Depression was in full swing, right? Herbert Hoover, the president, had made a mess of America. Oh, yeah. And now we're dealing with the with the fallout. And this becomes the age of the bank robber. <laughs> the thief. The gangsters. And the kidnapper. And the Tommy guns. Yeah. What are some of your favorite names mentioned? Oh, I mean, obviously, well, I don't know about if favorite's the word I'd use. Yeah, I know, yeah. The, the, like, just the ner- names I recognize, like Al Capone, uh-huh. Babyface Nelson. I am just now learning today that Machine Gun Kelly is a real gangster. You thought he was a character, didn't you? I, I didn't know From that. some movie or something. Like, he's a real gangster. He's not just a scourge on Megan Fox's life. Yeah, no, different, different. Different Machine Gun different Kelly. Different Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah, sorry, no. <laughs> John Dillon? Yeah, John Dillinger. Andy, we claim, well, yeah, he probably killed a lot of people, but like, you know, like, <laughs> he's buried here. That's cool. <laughs> and I've been to a speakeasy that he used to go to. <laughs> like, you know, it's all things. The gangster was, in a way, admired as an enemy of an abandoning and tyrannical, inhumane American government. It's almost like lionizing, I don't know, like pirates or um, what's another guy? Or the mafia, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things. The American people kind of identify with that. Like, yeah, fucking get them. Rob the banks. Like, fuck those hoes. Like, <laughs> and, like, we see, like, this theater where people are watching a newsreel of J. Edgar Hoover talking about how bad crime is. And they're like, play the gangster movie. <laughs> and it develops into Public Enemy with James Cagney. Like, Hello. When we cut back to the 60s. Who is the most famous man of the 20th century oh, thus oh, far? Oh, 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 And everyone keeps getting it wrong. The most famous. Is that you, sir? <laughs> and the way he can't even take it, he just, like, coughs, like, <clears throat> Well, I suppose his notoriety depends on the field that he is in. His field was in the clouds. Well, then Charles Lindbergh, sir. This is where I start bouncing in my seat. Because yeah, because you want the, it's it's your true crimey ways, like... For once, I actually have something to contribute to this conversation. So, guys, famously in 1932, Charles Lindbergh Jr. is kidnapped from his home in New Jersey, the three-year-old son of the most famous American aviator, Charles Lindbergh. What Charles Lindbergh was famous for specifically, I can't remember at this moment. He made the first solo flight across the Atlantic. Is that all it is? Well, it's oh, yeah, no. All. Is that all? It was a feat of aviation. He was but... a great American aviator. He was lauded as an American hero. And yeah, about this time, he wasn't doing as much flying lately. He was just trying to be a family man. We see him back in the 30s getting the call about it. Let's send officers from Trenton. I'll, I'll be on the first train. What is it? Charles Lindbergh, Lindbergh's baby's been kidnapped. You've got to find him, Edgar. He has to be brought home alive. Okay, again, no pressure. 
Yeah. No pressure, Edgar. Like, like, no, this was a very big deal because not only was, you know, Charles Lindbergh an American hero, but this was regarded as the crime of the century. They famously called it the most famous story since the resurrection. You know, that's not just something they wrote for the movie. That's something they actually said. And like, yeah, like you said, he was kidnapped from his bedroom in the middle of the, well, not the middle of the night, around 10 p.m. they noticed this baby was missing. And the kidnapper had gone out the window, down a rickety ladder. The ladder had split on his way down. He left a ransom note on the windowsill. And so, like, this case introduced the first super technical additions to the operations of the BI, and it revolutionized the way authority is exerted over a criminal investigation and the way the case is investigated. Yeah, because, like, you know, J. Edgar Hoover is called to the scene, but they don't got no jurisdiction here. Yeah, no, it's the separation of powers. It is the local authority that has to deal with this. Kidnapping is not a federal crime yet. And that's why we see... (laughs) Dermot Mulroney. Yeah, no, like, yeah, no, he's there as a local authority in New Jersey, and wouldn't he be... He's the superintendent of the state police, like Schwarzkopf. Exactly. And all of these separations of powers between the federal government and the state localities, you know, it always leads the B.I. to a dead end. Yeah. And but, you know, mommy said I have to find little Charles Lindbergh Jr. So I'm going to do everything I can to manipulate the federal government into giving what I need to give me the jurisdiction. I'll give this to J. Edgar because they go out to Highlands. That's the name of the house near Hopewell, New Jersey, where the baby was kidnapped. And I love how fussy he is with all of these men, all of these law enforcement officials for contaminating the hell out of this crime scene. Just about every single piece of evidence they touch. Get off of that dirt. You're trampling evidence. Immediately. Get off. There's nothing there. We checked. No defined footprints. It appears he was wearing fabric on his shoes. You don't think the size of the prints could have held some value? How did he get up there? Are there marks on the window and wall as well? There was a ladder. We found it 100 yards away, three pieces. We moved it inside. You moved it? Yes, for safekeeping. Well, congratulations, Mr. Schwarzkopf. You have completely contaminated the crime scene. Now, if you will, get your boots off this property. Because for one thing, I know that Schwarzkopf says that there were no footprints underneath the baby's window. There were. Lindbergh and the butler observed footprints under the baby's window when they checked around the house. And the men are literally standing in the mud right where they should be. Hoover could see how inept and inefficient this all was. Like, we see him in this congressional committee urging Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act. A little Lindy law. Yeah, to make kidnapping a federal crime so that, you know, we can uniformly punish it throughout the United States and have federal jurisdiction to investigate it. And that's all that was about. This case wasn't about protecting people. It was about J. Edgar Hoover getting what he wanted. You think he cared about kids getting kidnapped? And, you know, what really makes this so uh, unnecessary for me, in addition to that, is because I am of the not-so-humble opinion that the Lindbergh kidnapping was probably a hoax Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Number one, Charles Lindbergh told nobody on staff to go into that baby's room between the hours of 8 and 10 p.m. He didn't want the baby to be coddled. Nobody go in that room. Number two, no one other than the family or the servants would know that the family was even going to be on the property. It was against their pattern. They were supposed to be gone by Sunday night. No one would have ever known they were even there. And then the kidnapper allegedly entered the home before 10 p.m. when five other adults were awake instead of waiting until everyone was asleep. And the one that really clinches this for me 
is that even though it was a rainy night, no mud in the nursery at all. Hmm. Like, it's almost like someone definitely didn't come up the ladder into that room, but went down the ladder, you know, and down into the mud. Anyway. I'm just, guys, he... Anyway. Sorry. We'll hear about this later. (laughs) Like, you know, it's so mismanaged. Charles Lindbergh starts going out side of the authorities to help in the search for his son. That's another thing. He was constantly misdirecting that investigation. I know. There's talk of reorganizing the Bureau again. Oh, no. Because of how poorly this is going. Not the R word. Redesign? Uh Redesign poise. (laughs) Sorry, just had to slip that 13 going on 30 reference in here. Stop! And like, you know... This is a little out of sequence here, but we do get this little bit where it's inauguration day for FDR, you know, and Hoover is asking for the dirty deets file on the first lady right away. Aww. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt and how she might be a lesbian. And I'm like, do we want to investigate how someone might be queer? Aww, it's so gross. Yeah, like, and so he's nervous about how FDR is going to reorganize this bureau, right? We see, like I said, we see Lindbergh going behind the authorities back to this man named Condon, who is actually able to make contact with the kidnapper. Yeah, allegedly. Yeah, this guy says he's just a messenger. With with Condon going to the graveyard to meet the messenger or whatever. For a ransom drop. Yeah, that scene is so creepy. It is. Because, like, he wants money, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So... Because Charles Lindbergh went behind the authorities' back, Hoover decides they have no choice but to play along with Lindbergh's scheme. Yeah. Which is to, and they want to send this messenger marked bills so that they can track him. Exactly. In case he uses them. And, like, the way Condon is in the graveyard at night with this kidnapper. They'll give me 30 years if I'm caught. They could burn me. No. No. I didn't do it. I'm only the messenger. Huh? What if the baby is dead? Would I burn if the baby is dead? Well, why would we be meeting if the baby was dead? Place another ad in the paper when you have the money. Oh, it's chilling, it, Carrie. It is, because... <laughs> like, under my theory of this crime, where Lindbergh definitely did it, I think these guys were just opportunists who just wanted to ask for ransom money, even though they never had that kid. Which is also interesting because Lindbergh specifically forbade the authorities from staking out the cemetery. All right, all right. You do this to me all the time. Your theories are not (laughs) pertinent to the narrative. But I'm... (laughs) You're right, I do do this to you all the time. That's a nothing burger. It leads nowhere. They make the money traceable for the kidnappers' demands to get at the baby. Like, that when we see... Hoover and his mother sitting in the theater watching the newsreel about the baby's kidnapping. (laughs) And she's just sobbing and he can see that it's killing her inside and anything for mommy. Uh. We got to do anything to keep mommy happy because she has expectations and we need to meet them or we're not worth shit. Yeah, I know. And we can't be who we are out loud. Right? (laughs) Yeah. You know? Listen, that part sucks. Yeah. I'm not going to take that away from him. I just wish he wasn't a fear-mongering prick. I know. Like, and because because Conan can't get anywhere with the guy that he's going to meet in graveyards at night. Like, you know, Hoover tears out the smoking room in the DOJ to... For forensics lab. To create the first forensic laboratory for the FBI. Where are we supposed to smoke? 
like the, <laughs> to analyze the handwriting on the ransom note. P- from a production standpoint, the ransom note looks really good. I know, It's right? like an exact copy. And, you know, he also has a new minion in Tolson. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, so just the way Tolson follows him everywhere like a puppy, Uh, you know, back in the present narrative, when we see old Tolson for the first time, Uh, the deputy director of the FBI, (laughs) like he's the makeup's so bad, Carrie. Is he just, there's no nuance in that face makeup. You know, whoever did Leo's makeup, his associate took the day off. Like (laughs) it just, he didn't have time to do Tolson up as well as, as Leo. Like I swear. Tolson's like, hey, listen, I hear you're going to order wiretaps against Martin Luther King Jr. Without warrants. I don't know if you know this, but it's not 1920 anymore. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't do that. I have, oh, surveillance without warrants. That's just great. When I prove myself correct, we will have saved this country another radical revolution. History will remember that, Clyde. Yes, but if you are wrong, history will remember it as an illegal move over a petty grudge. Do you consider our reputation petty, Mr. Tolson? No, I... And order the wires. I think, can we at least discuss this? After you've ordered the wires. He tells Tolson to order the wires. Can we at least talk about this over dinner? Yeah, after you order the wires. <laughs> he says, so that's that. I feel like that's a lot of their relationship is just him telling Clyde what to do and Clyde getting no input, Aww. despite the fact that he's his right hand. Yeah, I know. So when FDR does become president back in the 30s in 1933, Roosevelt has a meeting with Hoover and Clyde, you know, Hoover takes Clyde to dinner and says, you know, Clyde, the president of the United States is afraid of an all out foreign invasion into this country. He signed an executive order to let Hoover surveil anyone he wants without a warrant. This is what officially takes the Bureau of Investigation to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. This is where we start wiretapping people's cold dead bodies in the grave. Yeah, no, this is the creation of the FBI. But then he celebrates with Clyde and offers him the position as deputy director of the FBI, his number two, his right-hand man. They celebrate with champagne. Even though he's forbidden all the other men in the Bureau from imbibing. The thing that Clyde says... I'm not much for the spotlight, Edgar. I need you, Clyde. You understand? I need you. On one condition. Good day or bad, whether we agree or disagree, we never miss a lunch or a dinner together. Well, I would have it no other way. I'm sorry. They're boyfriends now. (laughs) I would have it no other way. Yeah, no kidding! Like, they literally just became boyfriends. Like, and guys... Not, it's not all sunny and green in the valley for everybody anymore. Yeah, because, guys, the Lindbergh baby's remains are eventually found near Mount Rose, New Jersey, only 2.5 miles from Highlands, the house where he disappeared. You can see the house from where he was found. And I'm sorry, that American hero did this, because you only take that baby 2.5 miles away, that is somebody who needed to get rid of that baby and get back before he was missed. Whoever took the baby down out of the house definitely fell with the baby and gave the baby a head injury which killed him yeah and they carried him as far as they decided they would and left his body in the woods in a shallow grave and by the time these two yahoos these truckers (laughs) find the baby's 
skeleton. Yeah, mummified skeleton. Like, it just, it's horrible. And the thing is, even though that the coroner couldn't safely identify this baby's remains, Charles Lindbergh took one look at it and went, oh yeah, that's definitely my kid. Now cremate it. I get it. It's <laughs> sus. The whole thing is sus. Like, and you know what? Mother is now chronically ill. Oh, yeah. She has the nerve to tell Edgar that that baby's blood is on his hands. We tolerated lawlessness in the land until it grew diabolical proportions. The baby's blood is on all our hands, Edgar. On your hands, Edgar. Yes, mother. That's uh, just, you know what? Get bent, Annie. The shame. Yes, mother. Oh! And I'm like, okay, she's not mothering in the way we'd like her to mother. You know how that's everything on the internet right now? She's mother. Oh, Uh, she's mothering. Not Annie. Nope. No, not in the correct way. Six weeks after the kidnapping, the FKA has passed, the Federal Kidnapping Act. And now it's a federal crime. They can now have jurisdiction over that. Hoover tells Congress that we have to advance further funding for scientific research and investigations. We've just seen the way not doing that leads to poor results with the Lindbergh case. Is this the scene where he's getting his ass handed to him by that panel? Yeah, no, that's the thing. It's the uh, it's the Senate Appropriations Committee. Oh, okay. And like, you know, he's we need more money. We need we need more science in the FBI. The way crime is excelling, the, he says the way crime is excelling in the United States is tantamount of an invasion anyway. Okay. Because of the violence going on. And I'm like, it wasn't that violent. It was 1933. Yeah. People were sad as fuck and were standing in lines all day to get fed. Like, even if that were true, it's almost like poverty creates uh, crime. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Senator McKellar calls Hoover out for evidently subsidizing advertising for the FBI (gasps) in motion pictures and newsreels. This was wild to me. We are not permitted to engage in advertising of any kind, sir. No. But you take part, for instance, in the making of radio shows and comic books. I've listened to several of these G-Men programs. Your picture seems to be shown in conjunction with them quite frequently. We declined emphatically to lend any form of endorsement. Had nothing to do with their production, furnished no advice, technical or, or, or otherwise. Hoover straight up lies about it and says they in no way, shape or form engage in any type of advertising subsidy it's a it's a bullface lie because he definitely is engaging in this uh you know this uh reimagining of history where he was actually the one who shot John Dillinger. He's replacing the gangster craze with the FBI. Yeah, so we can be cool like them and maybe they'll look up to us in that way. Indeed. He indeed. says he literally lied to sell comic books, you know? Yeah, he denies all of it. Like he has like he has his qualifications question and he doesn't like it. McKellar embarrasses him. And then he immediately orders Tolson to put agents on McKellar and like tells him to fire the agent who actually shot John Dillinger. Yeah, no, he's like, don't get in the car. You can walk back. Doctor, we have lunch. We don't miss lunch no matter what, remember? You pulled away from me in there. You perjured yourself, Edgar, and the lie was an easily provable one. If he had continued to pursue it, there's no telling how much worse it could have been. Find Agent Purvis. He is to be demoted immediately, or better yet, fired. Firing the man who killed John Dillinger would be a PR disaster. Then he is to spend the rest of his career behind a desk, and if he'd like to keep that job, he'd best stay out of the papers. 
and you can walk back and demote everyone that did all the things I wanted to do. Bye. Like, just like. <sighs> so now, Jedgar wants to play cowboy. He wants to actually insert himself into these situations that he's been fictionalizing about being boots on the ground when they make these big arrests. The revisionist arrests, where he's the arresting officer and he's directing everything. Mm. Couldn't be farther from the truth, folks. We'll get that at the end. (laughs) And through this whole process, while Mother is slowly dying, and she's like, be strong, Edgar. Don't wilt like a little flower. Not Ross. He is. She has. Con- she has always conditioned him to associate femininity with weakness. Yup, that train is never late. And so, how could he ever admit to her that he is not the person she wants him to be? Yeah. And it is really making him work for it, and really screwing things up in the process. When he's like to the press, "This is after all the arrests." He's like, "This is a wee job." Not an eye job. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you? That's quite literally what you want to espouse, isn't it? <laughs> that this was an eye job. This was a wee job, not an eye job, not a blow job, but, an, but a wee job. <laughs> that's good, bud. And then we have like this little sequence where he's reading the supposed love letter from Eleanor Roosevelt to her mistress. Yeah. To Clyde. And Clyde thinks it's so funny. Oh, and they're laughing at women being gay together. <laughs> While simultaneously having these little rendezvous where, like, you know, they ditch mother and then hold hands in the limo and go to the club to hang out. No, that's the thing. They're, they're having trips to Del Mar for the horse races. It becomes their new favorite activity to do together. When they go to the movie and they take mother to the movie in New York City and they meet Shirley Temple and, like... I'm like, everybody step away from that child. Yeah, seriously. The going to the club and getting rid of mother and the hand holding in the back seat mm-hmm. and the women they encounter at the club. Leela Rogers and her daughter Ginger I, Rogers. I know. I ah! know. And like all of these women at this table are practically crawling in his lap over the Lindbergh case. Like, the nation's admiration is with you. Uh huh. And he's like, "Oh, I, I, I have all the admiration I need. Please don't have sex with me." Um, no. As soon as Leela Rogers wants to get up and dance with him, he's trying to dip. He's panicking. I know. He's quite literally in a gay panic. And the night is getting long, isn't it, Miss Tolson? Miss Tolson. Nothing. There's no time like the present. It's my favorite song. Miss Tolson, I think it's time we leave. Uh, we have a great deal of work. We have a great deal of work tomorrow, and I, I'm just afraid we don't we don't have time to dance. We're we're, we're very busy, aren't we, Mr. Tolson? Yes. And uh, my, my 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 sincere apologies. I right now, Mr. Tolson, at once. Thank you very much. Good evening. <laughs> oh, good night. Then he goes back to the hotel, and he's literally justifying himself to his mother. Like, mother, you know I don't like to dance. I don't like to dance with women. I don't like to dance at all. He's like, it's time you knew this about me. And she's like, well, I want grandkids. And like, oh, Ross, this is really rough. I can't with the Daffodil Pincus conversation. So she she brings up the story of Barton Pincus, who everyone called Daffy, Daffodil. Why did they call him that, Ross? Because he was discovered one day in their local schoolhouse wearing a hoop skirt. He was cross-dressing. Air quote, cross-dressing. Yeah. You know, because clothing's super gendered in society. And he was made to stand in public wearing that dress, humiliated. And he killed himself. That little boy killed himself. It's horrific. After that happened. And shes it's like she's threatening him with this memory. Do you remember what happened to little Daffodil Pincus? Yes, Mother. He, he shot himself six weeks after. That's right. And I thank God every day that my own sons don't suffer from his condition. 
I'd rather have a dead son than a daffodil for a son. The veiled nature of this whole discussion, wherein they don't even talk about queerness. Yeah. It is literally just reducing it to weakness and femininity. Yeah, she doesn't even go as far as to accuse him of being not interested in women or being gay. She's just afraid that he'll be perceived that way. Yeah, and then after that horrible scene, the investigation into the murder really ramps up for Charles Lindbergh Jr. Yeah, they sent out as part of the... Ran- well, there, listen, there were a lot of ransom drops in the Lindbergh investigation, okay? Yeah. But as part of one of them, like you said, they marked all those bills, and now those bills are showing up all along the eastern seaboard, and they're tracking them down one one by one through the you know from the from the lumber mills to track the lumber used in the ladder to you know him use him buying things in the South Bronx they're able to hone him into this neighborhood in New York City remember man to pay with this bill yes I remember him he bought 89 cents with a gas and he paid with this bill yes sir but I don't know him I haven't seen him since it was memorable enough that you would remember him if he came in again yeah, he was German. I think I mean with accent and point to Jim. High cheekbones, right? Yeah. I guess I looked at the bill funny because he assured me he had a hundred more dislike at home. And through the power of Adam Driver, <laughs> we identify a suspect in the murder. Bruno Richard Hauptman. And I'm sure you have opinions. Well, yes, we don't have to go into them. It is my opinion that Bruno Richard Hauptman did not kidnap or murder the Lindbergh baby. Really? Yeah. I really don't think he did. Okay, here's the thing. He had an alibi. What was it? He was working all day in the city two hours away, and he was picking up his wife from work two hours away at around the time the baby went missing. So he definitely did not kidnap that baby, and he might have been associated with the opportunists who, under my theory of the crime, just came in and asked for ransom money, even though they didn't have the baby. It was a hot time to be xenophobic and thinking all the immigrants are taking their jobs. Because this man was, like, I think German. German. Yeah. yeah, he's a German, German-American. Great time to hate the Germans. And unfortunately, he would eventually be tried, convicted, and executed for kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. Yeah. In the present timeline in the 60s, we get the Kennedy assassination, and I think this removes a huge obstacle for J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Because he just kind of assumed career-wise RFK would follow his brother into the grave. Oh. And, like, I lo- this is a story about the day this happened with J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was one of the first people to know that the president was dead. Uh-huh. Or had been shot, at least. Yeah, I was kind of shocked because as soon as he hears... He picks up the phone and he calls Bobby Kennedy and he's like, your brother's dead. Click. Mr. Hoover, Mr. Kennedy, the president has been shot. What? Mr. Hoover, what? Mr. Hoover? No, yeah, he actually did it like that too. I believe it. Jagger Hoover called Robert Kennedy at his home in Virginia to tell him his brother was shot. And people around Hoover would say later that they thought that Hoover actually enjoyed telling RFK what had happened. Oh, no. Like, he just, he hated them. I know he did. Because the Kennedys, even though they really weren't, the Kennedy administration had kind of been doing more for the civil rights movement than any presidential administration before them, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of acknowledging the legitimacy of the movement and criticizing the policies of the American South 
And if you haven't noticed the entire movie, J. Edgar Hoover was a racist and was his entire life. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're, we're back at the races, right? Back in the past. Oh, I have a great little piece of trivia about this because they always sat in the same box, right? Yeah. Him and Tolson. And this is citable. This is citable. But... Harry Hay, founder of the Mattachine Society, one of the first gay rights organizations in this country, said that Hoover and Tolson sat in the box owned and used exclusively by gay men at the Del Mar racetrack. Guys, they were together. They were together. They were in a relationship. And like, we, we get this very intense sequence where they're in their little suite at the club or whatever. With the one bed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, like uh, and like the way he can't say it, Hoover can't say it. He looks at Tolson and says, you know, I care so very much for you, Clyde. I do. And I love you, Edgar. <clears throat> Clyde responds with, I love you. It's Edgar. very casual. And like the clearing of the throat and the getting on the defensive he tells Clyde that he's considering marrying an actress. Oh. My. God. That was the wrong thing to say to Clyde right now. He just told you he loved you. Oh, and Clyde is uncomfy. Don't you make a fool of me, Edgar. I'm not Clyde. I'm, I'm not making a fool of you. Have you... Have you become physical? Yes, we have. What is it, Clyde? You... Do you want me to be half a person? Or remain incomplete? Is that what you want? Is that what I am to you? Incompletion! Army Hammer is throwing things. Oh no, the way he freaks out, I'm sorry, but based on everything I've learned, there's not a lot of acting going on here. Yeah, is that what I am to you? Like, it's actually kind of scary. You will never tell me what to do. You just lost that right. Stop it. I see right through you. You're a scared, heartless, horrible little man. They get into a full-on brawl, as we had last week. Yeah. <laughs> when we can't when we can't express the gay thoughts, we fight each other physically. And at least the physical altercation is also documentable. Maids gave anecdotes about how the room was trashed when they went to clean it up the next morning. You're a scared, helpless, horrible little man. And I'm like, Period. Period. Like, you tell him what he is, Clyde. Like, you go. And then the kiss in the middle of the fist fight. And then and then Clyde trying to leave. And the begging. Oh, no! Hoover begging. Clyde, don't leave me. Clyde, I'm sorry. I'm begging you, Clyde. If you ever mention a lady friend again, it will be the last time that you share my company. seems pretty final and then after he leaves the room hoover just whispering i love you clyde oh my god couldn't say it to him huh didn't have the big hairy balls to say it to him <laughs> did you the balls that clyde has no doubt seen <laughs> like come on yeah. like I, uh... and then we like transition out of them you know 
you know, seeing the races the next day to them in the 60s. Seeing the races. As old men. And guys. Uh, yeah. Clyde has a stroke, but we don't really care because it's Army Hammer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I cared for Tolson yeah, a little bit. No. You know, not Army Hammer. You, sh- you don't need to care about Tolson. He was just as evil as J. Edgar Hoover. Like, That's you know, fair. That's fair. You know, he he aided and abetted all of Hoover's shit. Like, And the thing is, is that even though, like, even though Tolson's recovering from a stroke, Edgar tells him he better be at the office the next day. And I'm like, are you out of your fear-mongering gourd? <laughs> the man just had a stroke. Oh, well, here's the thing. He realizes, oh shit, we old. For possibly the first time. The sun is setting like, on our time. And so he thinks the way to stay on top is to start having a personal doctor give him stimulants. I was going to say, vitamin injections? That sounds like, you know, a euphemism for speed to me. Welcome to the late 1960s. Like, oh, man. Yeah, no, he's like, while Clyde is recovering from the stroke, Hoover is taking these drugs to stay on top so he can remain in power, but it will eventually kill him. Yup. And like... MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., is being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. And Edgar thinks this would be a really great time to go after him. Hoover keeps telling Tolson he'll decline the award or else. Oh my god. He's got a nice little threat cooked up for MLK. Because what J. J. Edgar Hoover believes is that if he is actually awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, if MLK actually accepts the award, it will legitimize the civil rights movement. Oh, heaven for fan! And radicalism and anarchism will then reign again in America, which it has never reigned in America. Sorry, we have always done everything as a government to shut down radicalism in this country. Oh, I'm exhausted. I know. And so, you know, it's the way, it's he's, he's literally, they're having breakfast and... Hoover is telling Tolson, the more untrue the story, the greater the dramatic impact. And I'm like, do you hear yourself? (laughs) And he must. (sighs) That gay revisionist. Like, and this is the thing about his revisionism. He knows there's a story you need to tell. And he knows there's what exists underneath. Ah! Like his sexuality. Oh, wow, yeah! I didn't really think about it that way, bud. Yeah, no, that's the... It's the crooks in a biscuit, I'm telling you. <laughs> and like he's gonna send he's gonna send MLK in the mail the wiretap that he has of him cheating on his wife. Is that what that tape was? Yeah, no, when when Helen is like on the phone and he's listening to MLK's sex recording with a woman that is not his wife in a hotel in LA. Oh wow. And she can hear it over the phone and she's like, You're fucking weird. And like <laughs> Puts the phone down. You know what, bud? That's the thing. All that blackmail that he had on a bunch of different people, he, like, kept all the porn. He's fucking... Yeah, he did. He kept all the porn. In that super special secret file that Uh Helen Gandy started for him in 1920. Like... Uh, But yeah, he's sending MLK a threatening blackmail letter. Yeah, like, have you ever read the full letter? I have not. The only thing I read about the letter is that he probably didn't dictate it to her. Yeah, no. He probably assigned it to somebody else. But in this dramatization, we see him dictating it to her, the vitriol. And guys, the threat does not work. Mm -mm. MLK definitely got that letter. He definitely got the wiretap recording. But he said, "Eh, my wife already knows about me cheating on her, and I don't care. Yeah, fuck with me. And so he accepts the Nobel Peace Prize. They watch it on television. It's the way he's, Hoover's like, he's not getting anywhere else anymore. He's done. I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace 
at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States are engaged. The silence. <laughs> he just gets up and walks out of the room. He just turns the TV off and leaves the room. Oh, we're suddenly speechless. Like... He's becoming dependent on these stimulants more and more after that specific defeat. Because he's exhausted all the time, because he's in withdrawal, and then he needs the injections. Pills to wake her up. Pills to put her to sleep. Yeah, and while we see him getting sicker and sicker in the present narrative, Mother Die dies in the past narrative. I have Mom finally dies. Good riddance. And Edgar is broken. You know, he worshipped her, wanted to do everything he could to live up to her expectations, and he could never truly meet them. And then, guys, this is where we see the scene where Edgar goes and decides to try on one of her dresses and some of her jewelry. Yeah. And this is definitely a nod to the cross-dressing rumors about J. Edgar Hoover. Like, didn't people say that they used to see him at parties with all men? See, that's the thing. In the in the movie, we see him put on all this stuff, and he gets so angry and upset looking at himself in the mirror in this dress and with these necklaces like on. Like, he's revulsed by himself. And, like, I think it just, it's just to see how he feels in it. But then all he can be reminded of is the weakness his mother did not allow. Oh, my God. And, like, you know, he may have, in relation to participating in queer underground culture, yeah, he might have dressed up in women, in air quote, women's clothing once or twice. It's just a form of gender expression. Like, it's... It... But he did not cross, air quote, cross-dress as a rule. No. That's not something he was just doing all the time. But I think this is the film's way of nodding to that rumor, you know? Like, like... sometimes I wear a vest and a pair of slacks! It's really rough. Leo does a great job in this scene. I know. He tears apart all those necklaces and falls on the floor, and I'm like, listen... It's the one time I feel good for Hoover. His mother is gone. And cannot hurt him anymore. (laughs) Too bad it's too little too late. Yeah, I know. And so, after that, his life just continues to deteriorate. And so now we get Inauguration Day for Richard M. Nixon in 1969. Oh, this. I love the same parade shot where he goes out and sees Nixon parade coming through, and Hoover tells us in voiceover, When morals decline and good men do nothing, evil flourishes. Every citizen has a duty to learn of this that threatens his home, his children, a society uninterested and unwilling to learn from the past is doomed. That's all well and good, Edgar. I agree with you. But it's the way... (laughs) It's the way you're like... This way or no way that I don't like. Is it the lack of nuance for you? Yeah, like, I just... What do do I always say, bud? Life is built on nuance, and most people aren't built for nuance. He says we must never lower our guard, and I'm like, okay, but sometimes you should. Like, (laughs) Nixon is coming for Edgar. Yeah. 
and he wants him to retire. It, like his because what was Nixon? He he won the election of 1968 because he said the Democrats have given you nothing but war and lawlessness and turmoil. I'm going to be the law and order president. I'm going to put every black person and every weed smoking hippie in jail mm-hmm. so that we will no longer have a civil rights movement. That's exactly what he did. He criminalized being black, being queer, being a drug user, and put everyone in jail who would have anything bad to say about his administration. <laughs> and, and listen, Edgar is not safe from this vitriol. And like, yeah, no, even Edgar's a little like, um... That scene? This seems like a little much. That like, scene where he's looking at Gandhi and going, Nixon, he's, he's going to come for it all. He'll, he'll crucify me in my bureau. I'm afraid of what will happen if I'm, if I'm not here to protect it, Miss Gandhi. Your private file, sir. Then no one will ever find them. No matter how much pressure they put on, Get rid. And the look in her eyes, Ross, I have... Dude, what the fuck did this woman know? Yes, Edgar. No matter what. Ah! You blackmailed so many people, dude! No, that's the thing. It's like, it's all gotten too big for him. Because now Nixon wants to surveil the press. Uh And even Hoover is like, no. No, no, we're not going to do that. Like, he finally has a president that's, air quote, Willing to do what it takes. The law and order president. Yeah, and like he doesn't like it. Uh Uh-huh. Because he's going to be subject to that scrutiny. Because Hoover could manipulate Harding. He could manipulate FDR. He could manipulate John F. Kennedy. He can't manipulate Richard Nixon this time. Not that crook. Because Nixon's got his number. And Nixon was vice president of the United States for eight years in the 1950s. So he's already been up close and personal with what Edgar's doing. Exactly. And, like, they're at home. Clyde and Hoover are at home. And Clyde suggests retirement. It's the right time. If you stop now, you'll be good. You'll be remembered and adored for who you are. And what, which is what you've always wanted anyways. Yeah. You Ed- know? Edgar's so fussy about this. Edgar says, shut the fuck up, and then questions Clyde's loyalty. Now what, with my, my last breath, when I try to help save this country again, I'm rewarded with a, with a forced retirement. I will not go down to this man. The fact that you suggest that makes me question your very loyalty. My loyalty, Edgar? Yes, your loyalty, Clyde. Clyde takes his inventory. I love this so much because Clyde read the manuscript that oh, he's yeah. been having these ghost writers write. Clyde said, I've read the shit that you've been feeding to these people and that, you know, you're a true revisionist of history, Edgar. All the outright lies in this manuscript! We just go down the list. Clyde just goes down the list. Of all the things we've seen so far in the film, portrayed as J. Edgar Hoover being instrumental in it, when he wasn't at all. He didn't arrest Machine Gun Kelly, or Carpus, or killed John Dillinger. Charles Lindbergh refused to meet J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, did not think very much of him at all! Which is also sus that that is actually what happened because of your theories. Uh Uh-huh. Edgar, most of what you wrote is exaggeration. Some of it blatant lies, and I don't even know if you realize it anymore. Edgar, you can lie to everyone else, the whole world, for your own sake, for the sake of the Bureau, but you cannot lie to me. And then what does Hoover say? I should have never given you your job. (gasps) 
Oh no, I thought this was about to get way uglier than it does get. You weren't even qualified. Do you remember why I was so flustered when we met? Oh, this is, this is mad gay. And Clyde was like, cause you were working out. Nope. I was sweating because I, I knew at that very moment, I knew at that very moment that I, I needed you. I've never needed anyone else in my entire life. Not like that. That's really fucking sad. Yeah! Considering the mess we've made of not only our whole life, but the lives of millions of Americans, like... Isn't... I just... Ah! <laughs> like, it's just... I, w I would feel bad if he hadn't, you know, done so much damage. He said, I need you. And then he gives him a kiss on the head. Gives him a kiss on the forehead. And guys, to me, it's not a real potent love story. Well, of course not. You know, they... they you know, even though they did kind of live together in publicly it was publicly known that they did but they still maintained separate residences i mean yeah sometimes you know what i'm saying like regardless they, of whether clyde was ever in that house or not I, like, I understand you know like here's the thing queer people are complicated and we make them that way and you can be complicated without being queer but we also make them that way and that is what this goes to prove. Like, he called Clyde Tolson his alter ego because Clyde Tolson was comfortable being himself in a way that he never could be. Mm. Which is why he liked to refer to Clyde as his alter ego, the version of himself he would like to be. Very debonair, a little feminine. Comfortable. Comfort. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Comfortable. And, like, guys, Hoover actually dies before Tolson. Yeah, I was actually kind of shocked about that. I was certain that Tolson was going to go first. Helen picking up the phone. Yes? She hangs the phone right up and is like, just let me lock the door and get to work. London, like, London Bridge has fallen. We have to shred everything. Like, Nixon is informed that Jagger Hoover is dead. He's like, lock down his office, get a team over there, and get those files. And, like, Clyde goes to Edgar's house and, like, to see his body. And it's, like, awful. And, oh, God, this poor, poor country and all the people who lived in it in the 20th century. Like, he died on the anniversary of World War II. The anniversary of the end of World War II. And Clyde officially retired the next day. Yeah, May 2nd, 1972. It was the end of a different kind of reign of terror. Yeah. I think one that need not have happened if we had not demonized queer individuals and had the courage to accept them as people so that they don't get so power hungry in need of validation that they ruin it for generations of, of, of others. Like, And as Nixon is giving this really disingenuous speech on TV about Hoover's passing, we see the G-men come to collect the files. Nixon's plumbers. Yeah, but oh my god, Gandhi's gotten everything already. There's nothing. There's nothing left. There's nothing to find. She shreds everything. She destroys a file that has over 50 years of secrets in it. Wow. Eight presidents. Eight presidents! And 53 years of history. And the last thing we get 
is Clyde finds a letter on Edgar's bedside table. Edgar, for reasons that I think we can definitely speculate on, has a page from a letter that allegedly Eleanor Roosevelt wrote to her lover. We heard it earlier. Yeah, we heard it earlier. And Ross seems to think that maybe this was a letter from, you know, between the two of them. I don't know. I think that he just saved this page of the letter because he really liked it. But, you know, Clyde's sitting on the edge of the bed reading it, and it kind of hurts me there at the end. Funny how even the dearest face will fade away in time. But most clearly, I remember your eyes with a sort of teasing smile in them, and the feeling of that soft spot just northeast of the corner of your mouth. And then we get some on-screen text because that train's never late in a biopic. The contents of Hoover's personal and confidential files will never be known. Only a few clues from misfiled items have ever surfaced. Clyde Tolson inherited Hoover's estate, moved into his house, and accepted the U.S. flag draped over his coffin. Clyde Tolson's grave is a few yards away from Hoover's in the Congressional Cemetery. He was always looking for something he was never going to get. Yeah. And it's because he couldn't be accepted as he was by his own mommy. And so he made it his mission to be the greatest figure in American governance. And you know what, guys? He didn't do all bad, but he mostly did. Yeah, it's not exactly a net positive. And even the good things he was able to get accomplished had no good motives behind them. It was all about excelling his station. He did it on, he did a good thing on accident. Yeah, like, it's just... If we would just let people be. If we could just let people be who they are, maybe we'd have a lot less of the abhorrent, monumental consequences we've come to know and deal with. Like, just the way that the trajectory of his life affected the last century of this government's administration of justice. That's honestly the wildest part about it to me. And I love this movie. It's way too damn long, but it almost has to be. I love Leo's performance. Fuck Army Hammer. <laughs> I think we're. I don't give a shit about Army Hammer at all. Let's replace him. <laughs> who who would who would you replace as Clyde? Um, Bradley Cooper was supposed to play him. What? 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 <laughs> I'm gonna vomit. <laughs> Ooh, I would have liked that. Yeah, baby. Okay. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. I would. Oh, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. Mm-hmm. 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 Huh. But yeah, no, like Clint. When his name shows up when the credits roll, I'm like, I. Oh, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen the movie. I always go, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no kidding. What? Like Clint? You gave us a good one. It was really jam packed, but. It's such an interesting period in history to examine, to right after World War One to the end of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's great stuff. It's great content. Leo should have been nominated, at least nominated for this role. <laughs> he did it so well. He did. He's far more attractive than J. Edgar Hoover, but like, I think he <laughs> captures his spirit, which is what the actor is supposed to do in a biopic anyway. Yeah. Like... <laughs> 
right, guys, if you thought the last two weeks were rough, oh boy, get ready. Get ready. Don't worry, we're gonna close this month out with a banger for you, but we need to get through one more week of uncomfortable queer content. Uh, and boy, is it ever uncomfy. Um, next week, guys, we're talking about the brutal 1993 film, Philadelphia. We know. Tom was just with us at the end of May in Forrest Gump. <laughs> Tom was just here! But hey, guys, this bears discussion. Uh, yeah! The way a whole, like, the way two whole generations of queer men were just wiped out by an epidemic and we didn't do anything about it. Yeah, it's the worst. At least not as a nation. No, 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 no. There, there were a lot of people who did a lot of good for those people who were suffering in those times. This will be a first for me. Yeah? Yeah. I've You've never seen it? I've never seen it. Have you? I don't think so. Oh, great. So it'll be great for both of us. Yeah. Well, not, not great. We're definitely going to be sad. Yeah. But like... I've seen clips from it. I know it's brutal, but I, uh, mm, it's going to be a lot. Yeah, no. Can't, can't, can't wait to express our outrage at the many fallen brothers, sisters, and ladies. Until then, guys, please go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at kickingandstreamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an ampersand. And don't forget, folks, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet, folks. We want everyone to come and join this little brutal but queer watch party. More quality content coming to you from Kicking and Streaming. Until then, I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And as always, a sorry, sorry mom. mom.